Section 28 of Natural Theology by William Paley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 26 of The Goodness of the Deity, Part 1. The proof of the divine goodness rests upon two propositions, each, as we contend, capable of being made out by observations drawn from the appearances of nature. The first is, that in a vast plurality of instances in which contrivance is perceived, the design of the contrivance is beneficial. The second, that the deity has superadded pleasure to animal sensations beyond what was necessary for any other purpose, or when the purpose, so far as it was necessary, might have been effected by the operation of pain. First, in a vast plurality of instances in which contrivance is perceived, the design of the contrivance is beneficial. No productions of nature display contrivance so manifestly as the parts of animals, and the parts of animals have all of them, I believe, a real, and, with very few exceptions, all of them a known and intelligible subserviency to the use of the animal. Now, when the multitude of animals is considered, the number of parts in each, their figure and fitness, the faculties depending upon them, the variety of species, the complexity of structure, the success, in so many cases, and felicity of the result, we can never reflect, without the profoundest adoration, upon the character of that being from whom all these things have proceeded. We cannot help acknowledging what an exertion of benevolence creation was, of a benevolence how minute in its care, how vast in its comprehension. When we appeal to the parts and faculties of animals, and to the limbs and senses of animals in particular, we state, I conceive, the proper medium of proof for the conclusion which we wish to establish. I will not say that the insensible parts of nature are made solely for the sensitive parts, but this I say, that, when we consider the benevolence of the deity, we can only consider it in relation to sensitive being. Without this reference, or referred to anything else, the attribute has no object, the term has no meaning. Dead matter is nothing. The parts, therefore, especially the limbs and senses, of animals, although they constitute in mass and quantity a small portion of the material creation, yet, since they alone are instruments of perception, they compose what may be called the whole of visible nature, estimated with a view to the disposition of its author. Consequently, it is in these that we are to seek his character. It is by these that we are to prove that the world was made with a benevolent design. Nor is the design abortive. It is a happy world, after all. The air, the earth, the water, teem with delighted existence. In a spring noon or a summer evening, on whichever side I turn my eyes, Myriads of happy beings crowd upon my view. The insect youth are on the wing. Swarms of newborn flies are trying their pinions in the air. Their sportive motions, their wanton mazes, their gratuitous activity, their continual change of place without use or purpose, testify their joy and the exultation which they feel in their lately discovered faculties. A bee amongst the flowers in spring is one of the most cheerful objects that can be looked upon. Its life appears to be all enjoyment, so busy and so pleased, yet it is only a specimen of insect life, with which, by reason of the animal being half domesticated, we happen to be better acquainted than we are with that of others. The whole winged insect tribe, it is probable, are equally intent upon their proper employments, and, under every variety of constitution, gratified, and perhaps equally gratified, by the offices which the author of their nature has assigned to them. But the atmosphere is not the only scene of enjoyment for the insect race. Plants are covered with aphids, greedily sucking their juices, and constantly, as it should seem, in the act of sucking. 
it cannot be doubted but that this is a state of gratification what else should fix them so close to the operation and so long other species are running about with an alacrity in their motions which carries with it every mark of pleasure large patches of ground are sometimes half covered with these brisk and sprightly natures if we look to what the waters produce shoals of the fry of fish frequent the margins of rivers of lakes and of the sea itself these are so happy that they know not what to do with themselves their attitudes their vivacity their leaps out of the water their frolics in it which i have noticed a thousand times with equal attention and amusement all conduce to show their excess of spirits and are simply the effects of that excess walking by the seaside in a calm evening upon a sandy shore and with an ebbing tide i have frequently remarked the appearance of a dark cloud or rather very thick mist hanging over the edge of the water to the height perhaps of half a yard and of the breadth of two or three yards stretching along the coast as far as the eye could reach and always retiring with the water when this cloud came to be examined it proved to be nothing else than so much space filled with young shrimps in the act of bounding into the air from the shallow margin of the water or from the wet sand if any motion of a mute animal could express delight it was this if they had meant to make signs of their happiness they could not have done it more intelligibly suppose then what i have no doubt of each individual of this number to be in a state of positive enjoyment what a sum collectively of gratification and pleasure have we here before our view the young of all animals appear to me to receive pleasure simply from the exercise of their limbs and bodily faculties without reference to any end to be attained or any use to be answered by the exertion a child without knowing anything of the use of language is in a high degree delighted with being able to speak its incessant repetition of the few articulate sounds or perhaps of the single word which it has learnt to pronounce proves this point clearly nor is it less pleased with its first successful endeavours to walk or rather to run which precedes walking although entirely ignorant of the importance of the attainment to its future life and even without applying it to any present purpose a child is delighted with speaking without having anything to say and with walking without knowing where to go and prior to both these i am disposed to believe that the waking hours of infancy are agreeably taken up with the exercise of vision or perhaps more properly speaking with learning to see but it is not for youth alone that the great parent of creation hath provided happiness is found with the purring cat no less than with the playful kitten in the armchair of dozing age as well as in either the sprightliness of the dance or the animation of the chase to novelty to acuteness of sensation to hope to ardor of pursuit succeeds what is in no considerable degree an equivalent for them all perception of ease herein is the exact difference between the young and the old the young are not happy but when enjoying pleasure the old are happy when free from pain and this constitution suits with the degrees of animal power which they respectively possess the vigor of youth was to be stimulated to action by impatience of rest whilst to the imbecility of age quietness and repose become positive gratifications in one important respect the advantage is with the old a state of ease is generally speaking more attainable than a state of pleasure a constitution therefore which can enjoy ease is preferable to that which can taste only pleasure this same perception of ease oftentimes renders old age a condition of great comfort especially when riding at its anchor after a busy or tempestuous life it is well described by rousseau to be the interval of repose and enjoyment between the hurry and the end of life how far the same cause extends to other animal natures cannot be judged of with certainty 
the appearance of satisfaction with which most animals as their activity subsides seek and enjoy rest affords reason to believe that this source of gratification is appointed to advanced life under all or most of its various forms in the species with which we are best acquainted namely our own i am far even as an observer of human life from thinking that youth is its happiest season much less the only happy one as a christian i am willing to believe that there is a great deal of truth in the following representation given by a very pious writer as well as excellent man Quote, to the intelligent and virtuous old age presents a scene of tranquil enjoyments of obedient appetites of well-regulated affections of maturity in knowledge and of calm preparation for immortality in this serene and dignified state placed as it were on the confines of two worlds the mind of a good man reviews what is past with the complacency of an approving conscience and looks forward with humble confidence in the mercy of god and with devout aspirations towards his eternal and ever-increasing favor what is seen in different stages of the same life is still more exemplified in the lives of different animals animal enjoyments are infinitely diversified the modes of life to which the organization of different animals respectively determines them are not only of various but of opposite kinds yet each is happy in its own for instance animals of prey live much alone animals of a milder constitution in society yet the herring which lives in shoals and the sheep which lives in flocks are not more happy in a crowd or more contented amongst their companions than is the pike or the lion with the deep solitudes of the pool or the forest but it will be said that the instances which we have here brought forward whether of vivacity or repose or of apparent enjoyment derived from either are picked and favorable instances we answer first that they are instances nevertheless which comprise large provinces of sensitive existence that every case which we have described is the case of millions at this moment and every given moment of time how many myriads of animals are eating their food gratifying their appetites ruminating in their holes accomplishing their wishes pursuing their pleasures taking their pastimes in each individual how many things must go right for it to be at ease yet how large a proportion out of every species is so in every assignable instant secondly we contend in the terms of our original proposition that throughout the whole of life as it is diffused in nature and as far as we are acquainted with it looking to the average of sensations the plurality and the preponderancy is in favor of happiness by a vast excess in our own species in which perhaps the assertion may be more questionable than in any other the propolency of good over evil of health for example and ease over pain and distress is evinced by the very notice which calamities excite what inquiries does the sickness of our friends produce what conversation their misfortunes this shows that the common course of things is in favor of happiness that happiness is the rule misery the exception were the order reversed our attention would be called to examples of health and competency instead of disease and want one great cause of our insensibility to the goodness of the creator is the very extensiveness of his bounty we prize but little what we share only in common with the rest or with the generality of our species when we hear of blessings we think forthwith of successes of prosperous fortunes of honors riches preferments i e of those advantages and superiorities over others which we happen either to possess or to be in pursuit of or to covet the common benefits of our nature entirely escape us yet these are the great things these constitute what most properly ought to be accounted blessings of providence what alone if we might so speak are worthy of its care nightly rest and daily bread 
the ordinary use of our limbs and senses and understandings are gifts which admit of no comparison with any other yet because almost every man we meet with possesses these we leave them out of our enumeration they raise no sentiment they move no gratitude now herein is our judgment perverted by our selfishness a blessing ought in truth to be the more satisfactory the bounty at least of the donor is rendered more conspicuous by its very diffusion its commonness its cheapness by its falling to the lot and forming the happiness of the great bulk and body of our species as well as of ourselves nay even when we do not possess it it ought to be matter of thankfulness that others do but we have a different way of thinking we court distinction that is not the worst we see nothing but what has distinction to recommend it this necessarily contracts our views of the creator's beneficence within a narrow compass and most unjustly it is in those things which are so common as to be no distinction that the amplitude of the divine benignity is perceived but pain no doubt and privations exist in numerous instances and to a degree which collectively would be very great if they were compared with any other thing than with the mass of animal fruition for the application therefore of our proposition to that mixed state of things which these exceptions induce two rules are necessary and both i think just and fair rules one is that we regard those effects alone which are accompanied with proofs of intention the other that when we cannot resolve all appearances into benevolence of design we make the few give place to the many the little to the great that we take our judgment from a large and decided preponderancy if there be one i crave leave to transcribe into this place what i have said upon this subject in my moral philosophy Quote, when god created the human species either he wished their happiness or he wished their misery or he was indifferent and unconcerned about either if he had wished our misery he might have made sure of his purpose by forming our senses to be so many sores and pains to us as they are now instruments of gratification and enjoyment or by placing us amidst objects so ill-suited to our perceptions as to have continually offended us instead of ministering to our refreshment and delight he might have made for example everything we tasted bitter everything we saw loathsome everything we touched a sting every smell a stench and every sound a discord if he had been indifferent about our happiness or misery we must impute to our good fortune as all design by this supposition is excluded both the capacity of our senses to receive pleasure and the supply of external objects fitted to produce it but either of these and still more both of them being too much to be attributed to accident nothing remains but the first supposition that god when he created the human species wished their happiness and made for them the provision which he has made with that view and for that purpose the same argument may be proposed in different terms thus contrivance proves design and the predominant tendency of the contrivance indicates the disposition of the designer the world abounds with contrivances and all the contrivances which we are acquainted with are directed to beneficial purposes evil no doubt exists but it is never that we can perceive the object of contrivance teeth are contrived to eat not to ache their aching now and then is incidental to the contrivance perhaps inseparable from it or even if you will let it be called a defect in the contrivance but it is not the object of it this is a distinction which well deserves to be attended to in describing implements of husbandry you would hardly say of the sickle that it is made to cut the reaper's hand though from the construction of the instrument and the manner of using it this mischief often follows but if you had occasion to describe instruments of torture or execution this engine you would say is to extend the sinews this to dislocate the joints this to break the bones this to scorch the soles of the feet here pain and misery are the very objects of the contrivance 
Now, nothing of this sort is to be found in the works of nature. We never discover a train of contrivance to bring about an evil purpose. No anatomist ever discovered a system of organization calculated to produce pain or disease, or, in explaining the parts of the human body, ever said, this is to irritate, this to inflame, this duct is to convey the gravel to the kidneys, this gland to secrete the humor which forms the gout. If by chance he come at a part of which he knows not the use, the most he can say is that it is useless. No one ever suspects that it is put there to incommode, to annoy, or to torment. Close quote. The two cases which appear to me to have the most of difficulty in them, as forming the most of the appearance of exception to the representation here given, are those of venomous animals and of animals preying upon one another. These properties of animals, wherever they are found, must, I think, be referred to design, because there is, in all cases of the first, and in most cases of the second, an express and distinct organization provided for the producing of them. Under the first head, the fangs of vipers, the stings of wasps and scorpions, are as clearly intended for their purpose as any animal structure is for any purpose the most incontestably beneficial. And the same thing must, under the second head, be acknowledged of the talons and beaks of birds, of the tusks, teeth, and claws of beasts of prey, of the shark's mouth, of the spider's web, and of numberless weapons of offense belonging to different tribes of voracious insects. We cannot, therefore, avoid the difficulty by saying that the effect was not intended. The only question open to us is whether it be ultimately evil. From the confessed and felt imperfection of our knowledge, we ought to presume that there may be consequences of this economy which are hidden from us. From the benevolence which pervades the general designs of nature, we ought also to presume that these consequences, if they could enter into our calculation, would turn the balance on the favorable side. Both these I contend to be reasonable presumptions. Not reasonable presumptions if these two cases were the only cases which nature presented to our observation, but reasonable presumptions under the reflection that the cases in question are combined with a multitude of intentions, all proceeding from the same author, and all, except these, directed to ends of undisputed utility. Of the vindications, however, of this economy, which we are able to assign, such as most extenuate the difficulty, are the following. With respect to venomous bites and stings, it may be observed. 1. That the animal itself being regarded, the faculty complained of is good being conducive in all cases to the defense of the animal, in some cases to the subduing of its prey, and in some, probably, to the killing of it when caught by a mortal wound inflicted in the passage to the stomach, which may be no less merciful to the victim than salutary to the devourer. In the viper, for instance, the poisonous fang may do that which, in other animals of prey, is done by the crush of the teeth. Frogs and mice might be swallowed alive without it. 2. But it will be said that this provision, when it comes to the case of bites, deadly even to human bodies and to those of large quadrupeds, is greatly overdone, that it might have fulfilled its use, and yet have been much less deleterious than it is. Now I believe the case of bites, which produce death in large animals, of stings I think there are none, to be very few. The experiments of the Abbe Fontana, which were numerous, go strongly to the proof of this point he found that it required the action of five exasperated vipers to kill a dog of a moderate size, but that to the killing of a mouse or a frog a single bite was sufficient, which agrees with the use which we assign to the faculty. The abbe seemed to be of opinion that the bite even of the rattlesnake would not usually be mortal, allowing, however, that in certain particularly unfortunate cases, as when the puncture had touched some very tender part, pricked a principal nerve, for instance, or, as it is said, some more considerable lymphatic vessel, death might speedily ensue. 3. 
It has been, I think, very justly remarked concerning serpents, that whilst only a few species possess the venomous property, that property guards the whole tribe. The most innocuous snake is avoided with as much care as a viper. Now the terror with which large animals regard this class of reptiles is its protection, and this terror is founded in the formidable revenge which a few of the number, compared with the whole, are capable of taking. The species of serpents, described by Linnaeus, amount to 218, of which 32 only are poisonous. 4. It seems to me that animal constitutions are provided not only for each element, but for each state of the elements, i.e. for every climate and for every temperature, and that part of the mischief complained of arises from animals, the human animal most especially, occupying situations upon the earth which do not belong to them, nor were ever intended for their habitation. The folly and wickedness of mankind, and necessities proceeding from these causes, have driven multitudes of the species to seek a refuge amongst burning sands, whilst countries blessed with hospitable skies, and with the most fertile soils, remain almost without a human tenant. We invade the territories of wild beasts and venomous reptiles, and then complain that we are infested by their bites and stings. Some accounts of Africa place this observation in a strong point of view. The deserts, says Adanson, quote, are entirely barren except where they are found to produce serpents, and in such quantities that some extensive plains are almost entirely covered with them. These are the natures appropriated to the situation. Let them enjoy their existence, let them have their country. Surface enough will be left to man, though his numbers were increased a hundredfold, and left to him where he might live exempt from these annoyances. End of section 28